Now, sleep, rest, and relaxation, vacation, retreat, all of those words speak of slowing down and getting away from the hustle and bustle of life. Now, we, all of us enjoy the idea of vacation. Uh, you know, uh, Liz, uh, Liz, that'd be my wife, Chloe, my, just had spring break uh, over at Bethany, and uh, she wanted me to do things with her, and so I took some time off. Uh, a, a few hours here or there, and I took her over to a driving range for Christmas. We bought her golf clubs, uh, so she's a girl after my own heart. Uh, but I took her to the driving range, and she loved it. She was glowing all day, and she's, you know, this idea of, Daddy, do you have to go to work? I mean, they're asking me all week, do you have to go to work? Yes, I have to go to work. Uh, but, you know, vacation and, and retreat. This summer, we're uh, going on vacation uh, to Kobiak, actually, uh, doing a big family, a uh, big retreat with uh, and the other family that served with my dad up at Kobiak for so many years. And, uh, you know, we're, we like that idea of just getting away, right? Uh, we, we enjoy getting away from the busyness of life. You know, all of us here uh, this morning uh, have busyness in varying types. You know, it does, we don't all have the same kind of busyness, but we, we all have a busyness to life. And it's, it's often joked about that when a person retires is when their work life begins. Right, you know, uh, there's, there's. Sometimes I hear that even with some of the retired men in our church, they're like, "Man, I'm busier than when I was actually had a job." Um, but just this last week, I had mentioned the the winter break, and you know, teenagers like to uh, get up early in the morning. They like to uh, when they have that spring break, you know, they like to get up early and and go work and help dad or mom or whatever needs to be around the house. No, they actually they like to sleep. Right? You know, I always hear about teenagers. My dad and mom never let me sleep, which was kind of disappointing. But, uh, you know, there are teens that, what, sleep till noon, 1 o'clock during their spring breaks. I never understood how you could sleep that long. During spring break, I wanted to be doing stuff. Uh, but all of this entails rest. And God has designed our bodies to, to need rest. You know, that's why it's important for us to get sleep at night. And, and after a busy segment of life, you know, God a lot of times opens up opportunity for these vacations and these retreats. Although the word retreat, uh, typically you need a retreat from your retreat when you get back from your retreat. Uh, or there's a lot of retreats you go to and you're so busy, there's absolutely nothing about retreating at that retreat. Uh, growing up in the camp ministry, uh, I can understand why people don't think <laughs> retreats at camps are really a retreat or a vacation. You're in this session, then you're doing this, and then you go from there to this, and it's just constant busyness. But we all have, God has given us this, this need for rest. But for the Christian, there is no time to rest. When it comes to our spiritual lives, there is no vacation. There is no vacation for us spiritually. And we're going to see that fleshed out this morning. And as we've read through Philippians 3, uh, the entire chapter, uh, our, main t- our, our text that we'll be honing in on is really uh, starting in verse 12. But I wanted to have the whole chapter read because it's one of those chapters as I was studying, it's really hard to isolate this chapter. It's just so woven together, the way Paul uh, writes here in this portion of Scripture. Uh, he uses his own testimony as he begins here to explain the whole of salvation. Uh, he, he discusses justification by sharing what he, ha- he was before salvation. And then he takes the changes that took, and it shows the change that took place because of salvation. When it came to living on laurels and credentials, what did Paul say? 
He has them, right? He goes through here and says, uh, verse 3, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And he gives a list of why, if, if it was up to what we've done, and that's what's going to give us this confidence in life, or, and this is what's going to be meaningful in life, is our achievements. Paul's saying, I've got them. Paul was not a dumb man. He was a very educated man. Uh, he, had, he, he was a Jew. He, he goes through and lists. I'm not going to go through all of that. But he lists why he would, uh, what his credentials were. And then he moves back to his relationship with Christ in, in verse eight, verse seven and eight. And in verse eight he says, more than, than that, more than all these things before, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So what is he talking about here in verse 8? He's saying all the things in my life, no matter whether it's my credential, whatever my credentials are, whatever is going on in my life, whatever I have achieved, whatever I have done, I count all those things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Nothing mattered more to Paul than having a personal relationship and a growing personal because the language here is that of a consistently knowing Christ. It's not just a one-time thing. And it's not this academic concept. It's, it's this idea of that I am knowing Christ personally. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. He wanted Christ. And so Paul here is declaring that nothing compares to the immense value of knowing Christ. So for every one of us here this morning, there's nothing more valuable than knowing Christ and having that deepening relationship with Him. Even through the suffering and loss that of all that was, it was all for the purpose of knowing Christ more personally. One commentator said this, that the power of His resurrection, referring to, to verse 10, says the power of his resurrection is God's power, his life-giving power that he deployed in raising Christ from the dead, and the power that God uses to bring about and sustain the new life that the Christian receives from Christ and shares with him. The same power that God rose, that God used to rise, raise his son from the grave is the same power that he gives us to live knowing him. Paul experienced this power when he was transformed from his self-righteous way of life to a humble follower of Jesus Christ. You think about Paul's trans transformation, how God transformed his heart. He's on, road, he's on his way to persecute Christians. God stops him really dead in his tracks and shows him the error, his sin in his life and in, a, in an amazing way, I mean, none of us probably have a testimony like Paul has. I don't think any of us saw this huge bright light uh, that just, and we were blinded by it. But Paul understood this power 
And in Ephesians chapter 1, he says this in verse 19 and 20, he says, The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The power of God. Verse 10, Paul is saying that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. He wanted to know everything about God. He wanted to know God's power. He wanted God's power in his life. He wanted, he was willing to, he, to fellowship so much with God that he accepted the, the suffering that he knew he would undergo because of Christ. That, didn't, that did not deter him from following God. And it's from this declaration then that Paul shifts to give a type of disclaimer and challenge for each Christian through his own testimony. Verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. So Paul is saying, here's, here's what I want. Here's, here's what means the most to me. Knowing Christ, having a deepening relationship with Jesus Christ, knowing his very power and, and, and aligning even with the suffering of, of, of being having a relationship with Christ, the sufferings that will come from it. He's saying, I haven't yet already obtained it. He's saying, listen, this is what I want. This is what I desire in my life. But just understand, I'm not perfect. I haven't obtained it yet. See, there's a, a, a false teaching that, and the Judaizers had this idea that one could reach perfection. In many ways, we still have that thought out there today, right? I mean, part of our society believes that man isn't inherently evil. That we can reach this level of, if we do enough good things, we can reach a level of, of perfection. Practically speaking, we live like that often, don't we? If we do enough things... Even in our Christian lives, we become kind of just a list of do's and don'ts in our life. And if we can do X amount of things, we'll reach this aspect of perfection. We always try to be perfect in our Christian lives. The Christian life is messy. You're not going to be perfect. You can't live perfect. We can strive for it as God calls us to live holy. But the pressures of the surrounding pagan culture dampen and oftentimes even extinguish the enthusiasm and determination of Christians to press on to maturity in their obedience to the call of God. See, really what Paul is wanting is this a, a spiritual maturity in his life. He starts to begin to explain here in verse 12 having a right, right perspective on spiritual maturity. So Paul is seeking to inspire the Philippian believers, though they were, they were, for the most part, living righteously. There's a joy that you see joy laced throughout this, this epistle, this letter. But in this section, Paul seeks to inspire them to get back in the race and live up to their commitment to Christ. Paul's dramatic imagery of, this, of his race cuts both ways. Perfectionists who claim to have already arrived at the goal and those who have dropped out of the race are both called to get back on track and press on. It is not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid a hold of by Christ Jesus. So a question for us this morning as we walk through this text in verses 12 uh, through 21. 
is this idea of that proper thinking about spiritual maturity must dominate the Christian's life. The main truth this morning, as we think about this text, and what should dominate our thoughts and actions as genuine Christians, is that we must have a proper thinking about spiritual maturity, and that proper thinking must dominate the Christian's life. And there's three ways in our text this morning that we're going to see that. The first of those, and how we ought to think about our Christian life, is this, that the Christian has not yet finished the race. We haven't finished our race, guys. We haven't. Sometimes we wish we have, right? How many of you like running in here? Okay, there's one. That's typically probably what I expect. I hate running. I despise it. Even though I know I need to do it. <laughs> I hate it. If I'm going to run, I need a basketball in my hands and I can sprint up and down a basketball court. Other than that, I don't want to run. It's so boring. <laughs> Especially in the city. Just run around a block. Ooh. But runners have this race and, and, and sometimes it feels like as I'm running around the, the, one, the four mile block of of 16 mile and John R and DeQuinder and 15 mile seems like it's never going to end. I'm like, okay, I'm finally to that landmark. Finally to that stoplight. The Christian life, our our race is not yet finished, guys. So if our race has not yet finished, then why oftentimes do we take a detour and stop? We allow certain things to to stop us. Oh man, my legs are just, I just need to take a break. So spiritually, we're like, oh, I just need to take a break. I, I'm just tired. I can't, I, I need a break from serving God. I've been serving for all these years. Or it just seems like it's just nonstop going, going, going. That phrase just doesn't make sense, right? Take a break from serving God. God's called us to serve him. Paul desired that every Christian to grow in spiritual maturity. It was Paul's heartbeat himself. It says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but what does he say here? But I press on. Paul understood that he had not arrived spiritually and had more growing to take place. If Paul understood that, I think we need to understand it. God has more growth for us, each and every one of us, no matter where we are at in our spiritual lives. And why is he pressing on? Because what is of surpassing value to, to Paul? What does he say earlier? He says, surpassing value is what? To know Christ. So he's saying, I am going to press on to reaching that goal, to knowing Christ, to having this perfection, to, to wanting this perfection, to having this... this ever-growing relationship with Christ. He wants to be with Christ. I mean, Philippians 1, what does he say? He says, I just want to be with Christ, but I knew that this is, what Paul, this is not what God wants for me right now. But he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he's saying, he comes to verse 3 and he says, the goal of my life is, is to know Christ, to be growing, to be having a level, to be growing in my spiritual maturity. And he says, I press on. 
This idea of pressing is this idea of pursuing with pain. Those of you who have run, whether you like it or not, or and you get that cramp, right, in your side, and it just hurts. You're like, no, I, no pain, no gain, no pain, no gain. You just keep saying that over and over and over to yourself. Champions expect pain, endure pain, and never complain. You know? Or you could even, as one t-shirt I had from a basketball camp, it said, Christians expect pain, endure pain, and never complain. Which was actually kind of cool to have on the back of my shirt. I think I still have it from high school. My mom was not able to get to that one to throw it away. Um, but this idea of pursuing with pain. So Paul is saying, as I am seeking to grow spiritually, really seeking, as we'll see, a goal of, in verse 14. He's saying, I am, I'm seeking these things, but I am, I am pressing on, so what? Why is he pressing on? Why is he pursuing with this pain? And you think about the pain that Paul went through and pursuing a relationship with Christ. But he says, I pursue so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. The language here that Paul uses for the, the phrase, I was laid hold of, is really the idea of being seized by Christ. When you seize something, do you let it go? It's a, it's a strong grip, right? One way of describing this idea of seizing is to take hold of suddenly and forcibly. It's to take eagerly and decisively. Paul is saying he was seized or grasped by God. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have been seized by God. You've been grasped. You've been laid hold of. What does the, the, uh, John say in John 11? John, sorry, John 10 and 11. There. What is he talking about? He's talking about what? No one can pluck them out of my Father's hand. We are, no one can pull us away. There's eternal security with Christ. So in my, as I'm living my Christian life and I'm pursuing, and there is going to be suffering in the Christian life. He says, I am, lay, I am pressing on that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of. It, what, is he, what is it that he, is, he was seized by God's grace? He was seized by God's grace. Here Paul, one, one commentary put it this way, Paul is expressing his desire to know the risen Christ because he was in the grip of Christ's grace. Paul's whole pursuit of Christ was Christ-originated, Christ-motivated, and Christ-propelled. The perfection Paul speaks of in verse 12 is really the completion of the lifelong process of sanctification. One day we will be perfect, right? We'll be perfect. We'll be, we'll be glorified when we're in heaven. But until we reach the end of our life here on this earth, our race has not been finished. In this race that it has not been finished, the goal is to lay hold of knowing Christ. This ongoing, grasping, strenuous pursuit. Really this mentality of, I'm not going to be denied. 
In verse 13, Paul again reiterates with a familial tone to the Philippian Christians that he has not yet arrived spiritually. Verse 13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. And I would say that this phrase right here of this paragraph is really the, the, the centerpiece of what Paul is talking about. Really, it's a, it's a singular focus. Paul states through testimony that in the midst of his imperfection, he focuses on doing one thing. Forget what lies behind and reach toward what is ahead. He pursues and strains to reach what lies ahead. He keeps on running the race. He does not rest on what has taken place in the past, but with singular focus strives for what is ahead. Oftentimes, in our, I don't know about you, but when I've heard this verse spoken, are preached, a lot of times I think of it negatively, right? I'm going to forget what's happened in the past. So, there, so, I, so in order for me to grow spiritually, for me to have a closer walk with God, I need to forget all the bad things I've done. I need to forget those things and put them in the past and not let my guilt control my life. A lot of times that's, that's where I hear this and it just stops right there. But if you notice, Paul doesn't give a qualifier on this statement. Paul is saying, one thing I do, I am forgetting what lies behind. Now, does that mean that he literally forgets? No. Paul's not saying literally, I'm going to use some type of thing to completely forget everything from behind. What he's saying is, I'm not going to focus on what has happened in the past, good or bad. But I'm going to press on toward the prize of the high calling of Christ Jesus. That Christ, that spiritual maturity, that race that God has me in, this is what I am going to think, I'm going to reach forward to what lies ahead. See, if we're always living in the past, we can't go forward. Now, does Paul himself, in his own test, how many times has Paul referred to what's happened in his past? So clearly he's not saying you don't think about it, you don't learn from it, you don't grow from what's happened. But you don't let that dictate your future. What dictates your future is the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That you keep on running. Because if you're always looking behind you, what's going to happen? Well, on August 7th, 1954, during the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada, the greatest mile run matchup ever took place that has ever has taken place. It was touted as the Miracle Mile. British, British, uh, Britisher Roger Bannister and Australian Ron, John Landy were the only two sub-four-minute milers in the world. Bannister had been the first man ever to run a four-minute mile. Both runners were in peak condition. They began running. And as they were running, Roger, they both had their own strategies. And Bannister had strategized that he would relax during the third lap and save everything for his finishing drive. But as they began that third lap, the Australian poured it on, stretching his already substantial lead. Immediately, Bannister had to adjust his strategy and increase his pace. The lead was quickly cut in half, and at the bell for the final lap, they were even. Landy began running even faster. Bannister followed suit. Both men were flying. Bannister felt he was going to lose if Landy did not slow down. Then came the famous moment. 
As at the last stride before the home stretch, the crowd were roaring. Landy could not hear Bannister's footsteps. And he'd had a fatal lapse of concentration and looked back to see where Bannister was. And at that moment, Bannister passed him and beat him by five yards. Landy had it, but he made the one mistake of looking back. The Apostle Paul was very knowledgeable in the idea of sports and running and racing. He, anal he uses the analogy multiple times. And he's using it here to a degree. Lanny's mistake in a flash became because he knew that to be a successful runner, he must not look back. He needed to forget what lies behind. Apostle Paul here in verse 13 is not telling us to forget the past, but rather not live and allow the past to control the present. It is not to soak yourself in past accomplishments and failures to where complacency sets in. See, if we look at all of the past accomplishments that we have, the danger is what? That we become complacent and content with where we're at. As Christians, if we're not careful, we can look at, oh man, look, at, look how many years I've been serving the Lord. Praise the Lord. Look at what I've been doing in the church. Look at how, how often, look at how many people I've given the gospel to or how many tracts I've passed out. You know what? I'm pretty good. I, I've done a lot for the Lord. I think I can just relax right now. I think God understands. I'm just going to take a little bit of a break. Paul is saying, no. You don't do that. Paul is saying, I, I'm not going to focus on that. And, and, and what is the danger of focusing on all the, the, the wrong things that we've done, the sin in our life, or the mistakes we've made? What, else, what can happen then? And then depression discouragement, guilt that you keep holding on to that God's already taken care of. Oftentimes, don't we as Christians, sometimes we keep looking back at the sin that we've, that we've even confessed and made right with God, but yet we want to go back and grab onto that guilt, onto that sin, and it's, pulling, it's holding us back from going forward in our race. I'm sure many of us in this room have read or, or seen or heard parts of Pilgrim's Progress. But when you think of a race, how many marathon racers do you see with ankle weights and ankle vests and all of those things? None. But sometimes as Christians, that's what we do. We put all this stuff on us. Paul chose not to look back on his accomplishments lest they diminish his focus or lull him into complacency or indifference. So are you looking back this morning? Understand that you need to just keep on running. Keep on running. The best way of putting this is as Paul put it in Philippians 3, 8 and 10. It is to fully know Christ for whom Paul counted all things as lost to gain Christ. It is to fully know Christ and his power even amid suffering. We need to stop living in the past and start living in the present for what we are here to do today. And God has a plan and a purpose for all of us. Not only do we need to understand and when it comes to our spiritual maturity that we are in the race, that it hasn't finished, but that we need to keep on running. Look at verse 14. I press on. He's saying, I'm going to continue on. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in 
Christ Jesus. Here, Paul, in conjunction with the end of verse 13, Paul lays out the truth that we must be thinking and remembering to keep on running because the race is not done. How many of us like to, when we're running, none of us run just aimlessly, right? <laughs> Paul even talks about that in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians. We don't run 1 Corinthians 9 aimlessly. We don't box like the air. He uses the analogy of that sport. You know, you're not going to be successful if you're just slapping at the air. But we do, what do we strain toward? We strain toward these things. All of us know the story of chariots of fire of, and all that went on there. He kept on pushing hard. Unlike Landy, in that narrative, I mean, in that story, he's running and he keeps on pressing hard forward. And he finishes and he wins the race. You and I must have a thought process that lives knowing and meaning that we are in a race and that we cannot stop running until we reach the goal of our sanctification. We need to continue to press on. We are to be pursue, unrelent, pursue unrelentingly the goal, the finish line of our Christian life. Are you excited? Are you genuinely, truly excited about standing before Christ? And hearing him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. This text tells us that the side, this side of eternity, we are always to be focused on the one thing Paul was, an ever-growing and deepening relationship with Christ. Christ has grasped and seized you through his atoning sacrifice. Why are you not making knowing Christ your life's pursuit? You know, when it comes to this pursuit, there's really two dangers that can come. There's two extremes to avoid here. Is one, maybe your personality is one when it comes to a task where you must do it all. You know, maybe it's like you're not a very good delegator. You've got to do it all. It's, it's, it's got to be all you. You don't want any help. It's got to be done your way and all those things. But you, you, you've got to do it all. It's, it's, or there's the danger of God must do it all. I'm just going to sit back and let God do it. In the times as I've been looking at di- going into different ministries, that is I- I- easy. There's, those are the two extremes, right? When I was, as I was, I've looked at, at what, God, what do you want us to do? Or, or where do you want us to buy a home? Or, or all of those kinds of questions that come to our life and our, and our Christian life. A lot of times there's this thinking out there that this phrase, let go and let God. God's given us spiritual responsibility to, to, to act. I must do it all, or God must do it all, are both wrong. See, uh, no quarterback would say, listen to me and forget what the coach says. <laughs> well, there might be some. One might be in Wisconsin. But other than that, And what quarterback would even say, okay, man, just let go and let the coach do it all? Paul understood that it was because of God's grace that he was who he was and why he was able to do what he did. 1 Corinthians 15.10 said, But by the grace of God I am what I am, 
and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul knew that he would not reach total perfection this side of eternity. But this pursuit is not just for any certain age group, but every Christian. In the course of a person's race, events and circumstances take place that provide us with choices. Are we going to press on? Are we going to understand that when it comes to thinking about our spiritual maturity, we need to know that the race isn't done. The race isn't finished. And we are currently in the race. We need to keep on running. We need to persevere. We need to press on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because one day we will cross the finish line and be with our Savior. Then, thirdly, the Christian will one day finish the race. How does this, how does this race finish? Look at verse, start in verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. I love that verse. Like, this is the kind of attitude, he's pointing back, he's like, this is the kind of attitude we need to have. But if you have a different attitude, God will let you know. <laughs> However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. And then down in verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. We're citizens of heaven. And one day we will be in heaven with Christ. When you look at that goal of being with Christ, of knowing Christ, it makes you want to run for it. There are a lot of things that I, if someone stuck a really big piece of cheesecake at the end of the finish line, I'd probably run a little faster. Because I know I would have just burned off all the calories so I could eat it. But it's something that I desire, I like. See, when we are striving for one thing, one thing I do, Paul says, forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. A, the surpassing value of knowing Christ, of being with Christ. And it changes the way he lives. And he understood that he wasn't perfect. He needs to keep on running. Persevere. Because he knew one day he will be with Christ. So what is really, if you wanted to boil it down, what is that one singular standard? What is that singular thought that Paul is giving us here? It's Christ. It's Christ. God has placed us, by way of application as we think of this, God has placed us in this world. He's put people around you Saved and unsaved. Do they see Christ in you? Do they see that you are living for a different purpose? Do they know even that you are living for a different purpose? 
The author of Hebrews in twelve verses twelve one in chapter twelve one and two says, "What therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, every distraction, and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us." And how do we do that? What does he say? Fixing our eyes on who? Myself, my circumstances, my friends, my family, my hobbies. No. He says what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Who what? Is the author and completer of our faith. You cannot just turn on a switch and arrive to spiritual maturity. You cannot just flip the switch and have a close personal relationship with Christ that is full and satisfying. One of my professors from Maranatha said this, don't take your eyes off of Christ because of persecution, internal dissension, or the existence of minor differences of opinion. None of us has yet attained the goal. Keep striving. The results of a singular focus driven and straining to know Christ more intimately manifest in consistent ministry for the sake of the gospel. It shows itself when you are seeking to have that surpassing, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. When you are continually running your race, it will be manifested in how you serve the Lord and how you live for the Lord. And put it into the corporate entity of the local church it'll impact how you are reaching Royal Oak with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your neighbors, the surrounding cities, Clawson. It results in a deeper love for those around you, saved and unsaved. It is amazing what happens when God, when Christ is the focal point, it's the one thing, it's your, your, your central focus. In fact, it results in opening yourself up to sharing spiritual burdens. We as Christians struggle to share our spiritual struggles and our burdens, our, 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 the good things and the bad things. We struggle with that. We are so independent people as Americans. One of the most freeing things you can do in knowing Christ is open yourself up. Share with one another. Build one another up spiritually. Study God's word together. Outside of fun church functions. It results in a life of communing with God, not only a few days a week, but every day. It results in soaking up what God has to say to you from his inerrant word. It manifests itself in selfless living for God and others. It lives walking worthy of the gospel. It lives excited to talk about the gospel with anyone and everyone. It lives excited to serve because by serving, it helps to understand more about our great Savior who lived service in his life. So living and seeking spiritual maturity, a more intimate relationship with Christ, is not done all on your own or all on God, but an amazing combination of God's grace and power in your life and our submission to the Holy Spirit. May we this morning remember the one thing. May we have a proper thinking about spiritual maturity as it must dominate 
the way we live. Dearly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Lord, I pray that this would be our heart. I pray that we would be a person who forgets the things behind and does one thing I do. It's Christ. Lord, that that would manifest in our lives and how we live. So we thank you and praise you for this wonderful text. In your name we pray. Amen.